Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The saying goes, don't get caught with your pants down. But that's exactly what Marie Baker, also known as the pretty pants bandit, demanded of those she robbed at gunpoint. The tale of female gangster Marie Baker is the basis of a new musical, The Pretty Pants Bandit, about to have its world premiere at Georgia Ensemble Theater. Later this hour, we'll hear about the true story of this little-known criminal in 1930s Miami, who caused quite a sensation. Plus, our series of artists in their own words. Speaking of the arts, today featuring fine art photographer Jody Fawcett. First, until the 20th century, we knew of few women scientists. While science touches the lives of everyone on Earth, science historically was not open or accessible to women. Legacy of Light tells the story of two women scientists from different worlds, one from 18th century France and the other from modern-day New Jersey. The play is on stage at Synchronicity Theater through April 10th. Director Rachel May joins me now via Zoom, along with two of the actors in the show, Sarah Elizabeth Wallace and Halia Roberts. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Rachel, the play sounds fascinating. Can you give us a synopsis? Yes, we have two worlds, as you said, the 18th century French world with Voltaire and Emily du Châtelet, who were lovers in the 1700s. Emily is one of our very early scientists, women scientists. And then we ricochet back and forth between that and a modern day couple, Olivia and Peter, who are trying to have a baby and are having some challenges and actually decide to go the route of surrogacy. And so these two worlds are sort of orbiting around each other throughout the play. And then with some delightful surprises, start to crash land into each other. Ah, Sarah, please tell us about your character, Emily du Châtelet. Yes, Emily du Châtelet is so fascinating. She was so far ahead of her time as far as what she was wanting to accomplish and able to accomplish as a woman in 18th century France. Uh, a lot of her work was actually published, kind of co-published with Voltaire under his name, but then he would dedicate the the work to her. And it wasn't until after her death that it kind of came to light that she had actually been doing all of these scientific experiments and incredible calculus to do things like figure out what is the pull of gravity on Saturn and and um, lay the groundwork for what Einstein eventually discovered as E equals MC squared. So she's she's a pretty amazing woman. I think I read she wrote the definitive interpretation of Sir Isaac Newton's theories? Yes, yeah, she, and it's the it's translation that they still use 
in France today when they're teaching uh, Isaac Newton in school. So that's pretty incredible. Yeah. You're mentioning Voltaire having to either co-publish or write or publish her work under his name. All too common throughout various disciplines in early centuries. What was unique, though, about Emily's situation and the support she received from her family, her husband and lovers? Sure, yes. She, she had both. She had both. <laughs> All did. of she the above. <laughs> so she was married to the Marquis du Châtelet, who they got married when she was very young, I think like 16, and had three children together. And then she met Voltaire and the Marquis du Châtelet sort of like allowed Voltaire to, to kind of take ownership over one of their estates in Siray. And so Emily and Voltaire lived there together and Voltaire actually did some, some pretty substantial like renovations to the property. They built a theater where they would have performances of his plays. And it became this sort of like hub of the the French nobility and people who were, you know, involved in theories of the enlightenment and philosophers. And yeah, Monsieur de Chatelet seemed very kind of, you know, open to Emily having this this lover in Voltaire. And then you find out in the play she also had other <laughs> other lovers. So she was just a very free woman, but I think it was, you know, interesting that she she had that support and that she and Voltaire really seemed to be partners in their scientific work in that way. So was this progressive or just typical of French aristocracy at the time? Oh, yes, we are French. <laughs> yes, there is that delightful line in the play. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think in a way it's a little bit of both that they there was sort of a acceptance of the multiple partners and all of that in society at the time. But what Sarah was saying, we definitely see such a level of equality between them, despite the fact that one of you know my favorite quotes of Voltaire's about Emily is that, and I'm going to butcher it, but basically that she's a really great man who had the misfortune to be born a woman. Yeah. So <laughs> there's an equality there, but also it's sort of bred in the time that they are in. Very much so. But even before her marriage and lovers, wasn't it unusual that her family supported her thirst for her hunger for knowledge and her education? I think, wasn't she fluent in four languages, including Latin and Greek, by the age of 12? She was, yeah. Her father was was very supportive of her. She had brothers, and she was actually schooled. I mean, she learned many women of the time didn't even learn to read and write when she was growing up. And so she was, yeah, it was a very unique situation that her father kind of supported her in this learning. And one of the the books of essays that she wrote is her kind of like thinking about what is happiness. And her one of the central points that she always comes back to in this in these essays is that learning and discovery and reading and experimenting, that's the source of what happiness is for her. And I think that started at a very young age because of that support. Halia, you portray two characters, Olivia, the 21st century physicist desperately trying to conceive a child, and the wet nurse. What else can you tell us about these women? You know, Olivia is a really amazing woman. She is a highly successful astrophysicist in a field where there aren't a lot of people that look like her, you know, and she is on the cusp of great discovery here. Um, but at the same time, she understands mortality in a very real way. So she has survived cancer. She's also recently had a near-death experience, and it's brought about a certain clarity to her that she wants to be a mother, and she can't take the traditional path. And there's, um, there's a line in the show where she says, there's more than one way to make a planet. Well, there's also more than one way to create your family, and she's going about a non-traditional way to do that because of her medical condition 
And it's really just amazing to watch her take this journey. And then, you know, in contrast with the wet nurse, you know, that is her role is to nurture and feed babies. And it's something that Olivia cannot do in a traditional sense. So to play a, a woman whose whole function in the life of these people is to, to feed and, and give and, and nurture and give mm. life as far as, you know, her, her nursing the babies to a woman who is taking a completely different route to the same result, I think is a really cool like juxtaposition of these two women. Was Olivia based on a particular female scientist, a real life scientist contemporary? You know, that's an excellent question. I actually don't know the answer to that. Rachel, do you have any insight? <laughs> it is an excellent question, Lois. I think she's a bit of an amalgam. There, there hasn't been anything in my research that I've seen that suggests that it's a specific person, but definitely trying to uplift and highlight a lot of the women who are doing this work today. And it's funny, I actually heard a wonderful notification a couple of days ago about a young, um, there was a, a prize award, it was actually on W-A-B-E that I heard this, but um, there was a prize awarded to two high school students for different science projects. And one of them was working on all of the things that these two women in the play are actually have sort of built the groundwork for. And I just thought it was a really beautiful um, synchronicity that this ah. week while we're opening, that there is a, a new generation of a woman scientist who is using their work to propel her own work forward. Oh, that's fantastic. In preparing for our conversation, I came across a contemporary organization called 500 Women Scientists. Have you heard of them? I have, yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. An advocacy group. Who knew that there was still so much resistance to women in science today, but I encourage people to check out their website. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitz, speaking with director Rachel May, actor Sarah Elizabeth Wallace, and Halia Roberts. We've been discussing Synchronicity Theater's Legacy of Light, a play about motherhood, ambition, balance, and love. This show is a comedy that tackles serious issues women face. Motherhood, fertility, philosophy. How does the playwright Karen Zacharias balance the comedic aspects of this script with the serious topics? Yeah, you know, I think it's She's such a brilliant playwright, and the play is so smart because every scene is full of really difficult and wonderful, complex, emotional challenges that the characters are going through, and yet she's able to put all of this incredible wit in it. I think Voltaire, of course, is a great leader of that, the, the way he's able to have these wonderful little barbs in the midst of these, you know, beautiful scenes. So, but but we see it throughout all of the relationships. Malia's character, her husband, Peter, is this really kind of warm and, and a little bit goofy kindergarten teacher. And he's just wowed by this superstar wife he has. And, you know, there's some really delightful interplay there. And the, gosh, the descendant of these women in a way is Millie, who is the surrogate mother, which is played by Lizzie Liu. And she also is the daughter of Emily in France. So she plays both of those characters. And we see her navigating this world of trying to be the surrogate and trying to be a daughter in the 1700s where her choices are being chosen for her. And Karen gives her a lot of really wonderful humor in the way that she's processing those two. So I think it just like comes out of the heart of the play. I don't know, Halia, Sarah, do you have any other thoughts on that? Yeah, I think these women are, and you know, everyone in the in this show, they're just so human. And even in the most like serious, you know, heavy moments in life, sometimes there is a little bit of comedy. There is that levity in the midst of those serious moments. And so I think, you know, Karen does a really great job of, of writing these characters in a way that's so relatable and so 
down to earth. Yeah, absolutely. I think we, Sarah, we have to shout out St. Lambert too. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's the poet, right? 10 years later, her lover. Yes, yes. And he is so, I mean, just the way that that character is written and Benedetto's performance of it is just so wonderful because there's just he he sort of embodies this kind of like French nobility and and poetry and he's very showy and he's a swordsman and you know I mean it's just physically really really wonderful to be able to play in space like that and he has the delight of playing Lewis the brother to Millie in the modern in New Jersey in the modern day and he is just a sort of modern day buffoon in, in the same way that Saint Lambert is a little bit of a buffoon in the French era, but both are so grounded in like what they're committed to and that they really want to do right in the world, but they just don't quite know what that is. Mm. And so there's a lot of fun in that those two characters as well. Mm-hmm. They need the right women to help. Yes, them. that's right. That's <laughs> definitely right. to steer their ships. That's true. <laughs> you know, nowadays, fertility issues are talked about openly. How does this legacy of light tackle the problem Olivia's facing? Well, I think Olivia is a planner. And so the way she's written, you know, even though it kind of comes upon her in this uh, this moment of near-death experience, I think she really is open to taking a different path to getting what she ultimately wants, which is to be a mother. So I think they just, you know, the way it's written, it just really meets it head on. And, you know, they, they map out a course and they find the person that, that is meant for them as far as um, their surrogacy. And they just continue to, to take this journey together. Um, And I think it's really great to show this journey on stage because, you know, a lot of times when we think of surrogacy, or at least when I think of it, I think of like, um, you know, Olivia would be the biological mother, Peter would be the father. But in this case, that is not what is going on. And it's going to be whoever they choose is one half of their child. And they're very much embracing, you know, their surrogate as, as a part of their future legacy. I don't want to create a spoiler. So please tell me, if this question is one, I've tried to, I've tried to dance around it. How is maternal mortality another layer in this story? Well, I think it's not really a spoiler because in the second scene of the play, Voltaire and Emily break the fourth wall and talk to the audience, and Emily makes sure that everyone knows that they are dead dead and gone. Oh, okay. Good. <laughs> I mean, not good that they're dead, but... Yes. And so, you know, I think the play sort of gets that out of the way at the beginning so that we know it, but then, you know, we still, it still has a beautiful build to that moment when we lose Emily. But there are also, you know, there's also a storm and there's many apples and there's an apple tree and there's a lot of craziness that happens that means dead people aren't always dead forever. Ah. Magic. <laughs> oh, apples and Newton. I get it. <laughs> yes, Newton is uh, talked about a lot in the play, and the apple is a central theme. A theater critic in Washington, D.C., I read Rosalind Lacey McLennan said, Legacy of Light is an intellectual joyride from start to finish that confronts a universal question. How do women balance a passionate yearning for science with maternal instinct? Having immersed yourselves in this play and extending yearning for science to balancing maternal life and professional demands or careers, what are your thoughts about that question? I think it's such a, I mean, I don't know. I th- Myself personally, it seems also even there's a parallel to like the life of the artist and, and longing for, you know, to be a mother. It's, I think it's something that so many women, especially in our society go through as we're more kind of like nuclear in our families and less communal that like you want to give your entire self to the things that you're passionate about and that that can can be more than one thing you know and that that women are these multifaceted 
humans is still something that I think society is learning, you know, and, and that's sad, but wonderful that it's still that we, that we do continue to grow and see that women have this capability to kind of do both things, but that it is a struggle within ourselves to, to ask these questions. That's what that makes me think. Yeah, I completely agree, Sarah. Like when I, I remember when I first read the play and, you know, the life of an artist as a woman, you know, woman, you know, in her thirties, late thirties, it really spoke to me, this idea that we are kind of split in half, you know, into our career that we pour so much into and still the desires for family and motherhood, some of us, you know, and this play actually gives me hope. Olivia's story gives me such hope that you can have both with the support she has from Peter and then also with her just open outlook on taking a different path. It doesn't have to look like what you've seen in the past or what society says it's supposed to look like as far as your journey to motherhood, but she ends up with everything. She ends up with her planet and with her baby. So it's really awesome to me to see that. So it's really hopeful. But yeah, there is this kind of idea, like, do I have to sacrifice one for the other? But Olivia's story shows me that you don't necessarily have to do that. Yeah. And I would just add, I think I was one of two parents on our project (laughs) in terms of, you know, the people in the room. So yeah, that having the three children and balancing that with a pretty rigorous work life is definitely something that I think about a lot, especially as I haven't really seen my kids in the past two weeks very much. But, you know, I agree. I think this play gives you so much hope because I think it really allows the women in the play to have a bit of a mutual kind of acquiescing to both and not prioritizing one over the other and saying it's okay to really love that sort of commitment to family, motherhood, whatever that might be for you, and to let that take focus, but also to have this other thing that is really important to you that you can love and be passionate about. And they don't have to be, they they do have to sort of give way to each other in kind of an exquisite difficult, delicate dance, but that they don't have to, you don't have to claim only one or the other to identify you and to sort of dictate who you are in the world. Director Rachel May with actor Sarah Elizabeth Wallace and Halia Roberts. Legacy of Light is on stage at Synchronicity Theater through April 10th. You can find more information on our website wabe.org. In a moment, the story behind the Pretty Pants Bandit, coming this week to George Ensemble Theater. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The saying goes, don't get caught with your pants down. But that's exactly what Marie Baker, also known as the Pretty Pant Bandit, demanded of those she robbed at gunpoint. The tale of female gangster Marie Baker is the basis of a new musical having its world premiere at George Ensemble Theater tomorrow, March 31st, and running through April 17th. 
Playwrights Chase Peacock and Jessica DeMaria join me now via Zoom, along with director Jim Donatio. Welcome back to City Lights. Thank you. Thank you. Lovely to be here again. Not much is known about Marie Baker, except that she served three years in prison under her real name, Mrs. Rose Durante, and disappeared into obscurity after her release. Jessica, how did you find out her story? (laughs) Well, I was actually doing research for another play years ago. I guess Chase and I started working on the show in 2017, and I was playing a female gangster and did some research on some other female gangsters, and she kind of popped up on sort of a list of 19 lady bandits you don't know about. And... um, (laughs) I was like, wow, this is hilarious and fascinating. And um, when Chase and I were brainstorming ideas to write a, you know, a female driven narrative, I said, well, I've been sitting on this lady that I think is really interesting. And we started researching her. And just like you said, there's, there's not much beyond the headlines. And so for us, we kind of took the liberty of inventing a backstory for her. There are plenty of reasons why, you know, you can theorize she pants the men she robbed. They couldn't chase after her, um, you know, to gain headlines, anything like that. But um, we kind of looked a little bit deeper and said, what what kind of woman felt the need or the drive to humiliate men in this way? And um, drawing from, you know, personal and tangential experience, we kind of invented a, a backstory for her as to why, you know, she was motivated to do this crazy thing. We decided that perhaps she was fleeing a bad marriage, considering when she was booked we found out she was Mrs. Rose Durante and we hadn't heard of her husband until that moment. So we thought, well, what kind of man was this? <laughs> mm. So can you give us a brief overview of her life or is this the narrative you created of her life based on these scant facts? Yes, it's pretty much the narrative we've created about her life. Basically, we decided that perhaps she was leaving an abusive home situation, a marriage where every little thing she did was controlled and arrested from her own control, what she thought, what she wore, what she said, what she did. And, you know, one day she just walked out and she took that journey of rediscovering herself, a little bit of vengeance tossed in there. She kind of boldly and recklessly took it to the streets, you know, humiliating as many men as she could while she was doing it, because what was already fantastic about her and unusual about her was that she was a, you know, a female gangster leading a gang of men that the newspapers referred to as her pants gang. And that in and of itself demonstrated a level of strength and boldness that we found really interesting. And we tied basically her plot, her string of robberies, leading these men to a vengeance plot against her husband basically to regain her own sense of control over her life, rediscover herself. So the descriptor, it's not that they are pretty pants. She's pretty. Yes. And she was the pants bandit. Yeah, exactly. Got it. And she was taking the pants. Okay. And over how long a period did these robberies continue? Uh, 1932 to 1933. It's a year-long string. Wow. Jessica, you mentioned 19 other names came up. Why do you think the lives and crimes of female gangsters are less known than those of their male counterparts? (laughs) Well, (laughs) I mean, I think in general, historically, men are favored in terms of us learning anything about them. I think that what basically happened is with very few exceptions, At the time these crimes, events were taking place, it was just of greater interest what the men were doing. And they were sort of in charge, you know, with the exception of Bonnie and Clyde. I mean, even that is the two of them, right? And Bonnie, for the most part, gets the short end of the stick. And I think it's just because, (laughs) again, like I said, in any kind of history lesson, it's sort of the men's tales that, that take precedence. And I think that kind of, bleeds out into most media we consume. And I I think that was sort of even the big push as to why Chase and I really wanted to create something that was 
female driven. Jim, tell us about why you wanted this production at Georgia Ensemble. Well, it started out with uh, actually a uh, call from my daughter, Kate, who uh, told me that two friends of hers, Chase Peacock and Jessica DiMaria, were presenting an earlier work of their musical at a venue, and I should come and meet these people. And I usually don't say no to my daughter. So uh, <laughs> I said, uh, oh, fine, where's it going to be? And she said, it's going to be in the back room at Manuel's Tavern. <laughs> I thought, interesting place to do a read-through, sing-through of a concert version of a musical, but hey, let's go. <laughs> I went and I had a lovely time. And afterwards, I uh, asked Kate to introduce uh, Chase and Jessica to myself and uh, so in the midst of talking, because I was very impressed with their musical ability and how they write and their lyricism and everything about uh, what they did. And I was asking them for GET, I was saying, well, we're always looking for new plays and new shows at GET. And uh, so do you guys have anything else on the back burner that you're working on? They both kind of raised their little eyebrows and eyes got big. And said, well, we have we have a new a new musical that we're working on. I said, "Do you have anything I could listen to?" And they said, "Oh yeah, yeah, we've got a couple of three songs written. Uh, we kind of have an idea for a story." And I said, "Well, send me what you've got, and uh, let's see." So a few days later, or I got something in my email with the first three, maybe four songs that you guys had done. And I plugged the first one in and went, wow, that's pretty good for a first effort. What's the second one like? Well, that's, that's even better than the first and third and fourth. And by the time I'd gotten to the end, I was completely hooked. <laughs> I think the music for the show is absolutely, absolutely wonderful. So I talked to Anita Farley, our producing artistic director, and said, I really want to follow up on this. And we had Chase and Jessica come in and uh, talk about uh, going forward with a production that we could develop for Georgia Ensemble. By that time, I was hooked. So the only caveat that they had to put up with is I wanted to direct it. <laughs> so it was that's the reason we're doing it but it's been a labor of love it's been a long time we've had lots of story conferences we've been working on this show for three years now uh, the three of us and you guys have started the, the year before right yeah we I think we started in 2017 and then we partnered up with y'all in 2019 so yeah were you still living in Atlanta at the time, Jessica and Chase? You are living in New York full time now. Yeah. <laughs> yes, at the time uh, we were still living in Atlanta and writing as as often as we possibly could. It takes a great while to write uh, something of this scale. So we were meeting as often as we could and storyboarding and uh, mm. writing new songs. And I think... Gosh, I think we ended up with we're at like 23 songs in the show now. Wow. So you can right. imagine you can imagine the time that it may take to uh, sit down and conceive of all of them, make sure they work and uh, get the lyrics. And yeah, it's been a it's been a long time. But uh, through these rehearsal processes so far, it is very it's very obvious that that work has paid off. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about a couple songs. Let's start with Make It Beautiful. Oh. What's this song about? I have like such fond memories of, of writing this song. I was actually visiting New York, visiting my family in New York at the time. And I remember I was riding the LIRR from Long Island into Manhattan while we were developing the chorus for this song, uh, the lyrics for it. I think really at, at that point in both of our lives, it was sort of an acknowledgement of being grateful for what you have, but not being afraid of reaching beyond that. And that you can strike that balance I feel personally myself, like sometimes people think of it as an either or, like you only reach beyond if you're dissatisfied, but I think you can sort of combine both. And it's really, it's about living in the moment and taking advantage of the moment. You're looking at the world, you're seeing all the warning signs, but the world you knew is gone. You have to carry on, your life is spun a whirl. 
that even after all this time You've forgotten how to breathe You've forgotten that you need much more You've run up short Not every word's a lie Not every touch is so unkind Start tearing down the walls If you want to feel it all I know it seems at times It's difficult to realize That it's only up to you So why not enjoy And Chase and I joke that this is the one that, that will be performed on the Tonys when we're nominated. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. <laughs> Look forward to that. <laughs> but it's, it's um, and in the show, it's a moment of forgetting about the trials and tribulations and the pain of your life and focusing on what's beautiful about it in its everyday existence, you know? It was very early in the process. I think this was the second song written yeah, for the show. The it was very, I don't know, it was a very good way to get off and running because it is, it does fit into our story very well and it has its place, but it has such a broad message, the song. So it was very easy to be able to write it out of context and mm -hmm. just from the heart because it, it just gives a very blanket statement, our perspective on life. Who was a part of her gang or the characters you created in the narrative? Well, they're a bit of a, a uh, an eclectic misfit <laughs> bunch. Motley crew. <laughs> uh, it's a motley crew of, of, of people who are not particularly exceptional. Uh, and they're in the, this day-to-day -day lifestyle that they have has been created for them or that they have created for themselves. Then this woman walks into their lives and literally changes their life. And they become this sort of cohesive unit that they had never been before because it was three different individuals. And a fourth, if you count Lawrence, uh, but Lawrence is his own person. <laughs> it's a very interesting mix. And the fact that this all came together and that they functioned so well none of them having any experience in criminal behavior. <laughs> none of them being able to know about how to have a robbery or to get guns or even <laughs> dress very well. So, <laughs> it's an interesting mix of people for the characters, yeah. So is the song Big Boy Dreams <laughs> about the members joining her gang? Yes, 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 yes it is. <laughs> train till it falls off the tracks and never remember the way things were she's insane but it don't change the fact that she gets cash so i'm with her boys the world is wide i'm gonna see it all from my very own big ass yacht with a wheel made of gold and 13 bears for 14 girls cruising 50 knots after 15 shots i'm gonna sell that My problem with the show is that <laughs> I'm extremely fond of too many songs. <laughs> the joke even before rehearsal started was that uh, a song would start to happen and I would say, that's my favorite. And then we play another song and uh -huh. no, that's my favorite. And uh, I've got it down to like seven favorites, I think, in the show. <laughs> Well, it sounds like the makings for a hit. And we think so. <laughs> yeah, we sure hope so. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, speaking with director Jim Donatio. And the creators of the musical The Pretty Pants Bandit, Chase Peacock and Jessica DeMaria. Well, how do you approach her demands that her victims leave their pants down. I mean, this could be a hilarious sight gag kind of thing, or are you aiming for something with a deeper meaning? Well, I think what we've done, and especially um, with Jimmy's staging that we've seen so far, is basically Marie is sort of motivated unexpectedly to do this mid first heist, let's say. And it's prompted by 
the voice of her husband sort of coming in to the picture and triggering her for lack of a better word. And it causes her to make this wacky <laughs> demand. And I think right now it really kind of accomplishes the understanding that the motivation is difficult and hard and painful. And yet when it actually happens, it's still funny and it's still <laughs> completely out of the blue. And it's all of those things at one time, you know, after it happens, you know, one of her boys, Sam, asked her like, what were you thinking? What was that? And she doesn't even re remember that she's done it. She goes, what are you talking about? And he's like, his pants, <laughs> you know? And she says, I don't really know why I did it, but it felt like I had to. <sighs> and, and so I think it, it just, it kind of works. And I think what's really awesome about it is that it checks all those boxes. It is funny. It is a sight gag. It is embarrassing for the men. And it is motivated by something deeper. Indeed. It's a comeuppance with yes. the pants coming down. <laughs> you will. Write that down. Write that down. <laughs> and it becomes obvious, obviously the signature of this group also and the signature of Marie Baker. Mm. Now, the three years she served doesn't seem severe for robbing at gunpoint. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, she could have gotten a lot worse. Yeah. What do you make of that? Well, I think, like we said, there is not very much literature to be found on her. There is the headlines and there is, you know, here's her gag. She had a gang, she went away and then she got out and she disappeared into obscurity. If you ask me, I would have to say that it's maybe that we, at least to what we found, she didn't harm anyone. Mm -hmm. She would never <sighs> fire. You know, the, no one was hurt, no one was injured, no one was killed. So perhaps that has something to do with it. But you would think that, like, at least back in those days, they might have, you know, found a way to punish her a little more, even for just embarrassing these folks so badly. Yeah. <laughs> a gentle gangster. Yes. yes. <laughs> Correct. A criminal with a heart of gold. And I think we've developed a, a, a little twist toward the very end of the show that sort of explains why she was going to jail and what the circumstances would be and probably also uh, has to do with the, the amount of time she served. Ah, okay. And I take it that would be a spoiler. I'm not saying anything. Yeah, no, else. spoiler no. alert. No spoiler. <laughs> okay, but ultimately... Marie's vanity was her undoing, is that correct? Yes, legend has it. I mean, this is not included in our show because it doesn't quite jive with our Marie Baker, but uh, legend had it has it that um, she was caught finally because she took a little too much time reapplying her lipstick in a mirror, which allowed one of her hostages to get away. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> but she looked pretty when she but was... She looked Yes, exactly. <laughs> she killed that mugshot. Oh, very well put. <laughs> the production is set in 1930s Miami. What can you tell us about the set design? Kat Connolly is our set designer. The set is multifunctional, and it has to be because there are multiple scenes in multiple locations in the show. So what Kat has done is provided me with a set that is uh, multi-level, that functions in any number of ways that I can change scenes and locations, not only with uh, set changes, but with lighting changes. And I know Kat and I, when we talked about it originally, we wanted something that gave a little flavor of Miami in the 30s. I mean, it's, a, it's technically a gangster story, but it's not set in New York or Chicago. It's set in Miami. So there's a little more of a Miami flavor to the set. There will be to the lighting. There's a couple of musical numbers that reflect the locale. And that's what we tried to do. Uh, and also what, when I'm directing, what I always ask my designer for is, please give me as many possibilities of working this set as possible. So we are up on platforms, we are out in corners, we are coming underneath, we're doing all kinds of things to uh, continue to move the show along. 
there are countless books, films, TV shows about gangsters. Do you think in any way those glorify the behavior of a criminal? I do. Yeah, I, do. I would say sure. <laughs> yeah. And and where do where do you come in? How does this musical shed a light on issues that you think are important to address? You believe she was in an abusive marriage and that explains but may not justify the situation. Yeah. And, you know, and I think Chase and I have always felt that we would kind of leave, like we were okay with leaving that a question mark because when we were doing our research, what we did find was a lot of historical context for Miami at the time. The chief of police, who is a character in our play, is a real man who was an out member of the KKK during his tenure, had lynched a black bellboy at a hotel and still served and then served another term after that. There was so much racial conflict and wealth disparity in the city at the time. And that sort of informed the backdrop of our show as well. I mean, it's, you know, one woman's journey became representative of an entire community's efforts to sort of seize their control back. And it's one of those things where it's like, how far does one go to affect change? And I think that's a contemporary question right now. And I think our musical (laughs) raises that question, um, brings it forward. And what motivates people to, you know, dive into, let's just say criminal activity, harmless though hers was really, what, what pushes you to that brink? And how do we seize the drive to make change while making it in a healthy and productive way? And I think that will be a question that audience members leave with to some extent. One of the things that I feel is uh, very interesting is that it's not a straight line character story. You've got this woman who starts out in a particular place and time and in her personality, and she sort of kind of gets into this. But there's a time when it starts going too far, and there's the effect of fame and or success and the adrenaline of creating and, and, and these heists that starts to affect people and change who they are, sometimes for the good and sometimes for the bad. And there's a little bit of both here. Of course, she realizes this by the end of the story and uh, there is a definite sense of redemption by the end of the story. Chase Peacock and Jessica DeMaria, creators of The Pretty Pants Bandit, with director Jim Donadio. The show opens March 31st, Thursday, and runs through April 17th at George Ensemble Theater in Roswell. More information will be on our website, wabe.org. Coming up... The next installment in our series, Speaking of the Arts, today featuring fine art photographer Jody Fawcett. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. It's time now for our segment, Speaking of the Arts, where we hear some of Atlanta's creative artists in their own words. My name is Jody Fawcett, and I'm a fine art photographer who dabbles in sculpture, illustration, and video work. In high school, I was on the yearbook staff as photographer, And when I turned 18, I moved out of my parents' house into a trailer next to the pasture down the road and turned it into, in my version, Andy Warhol's The Factory, which was just having my friends come over, putting on costumes, putting on lingerie, smoking cigarettes, photographing it, and just being bad in general. My whole idea was I wanted my friends and family to look like Helmut Newton models, but in North Georgia. My art is influenced by 70s cinema, 80s rock music, 
bad perfume and cologne commercials. Anything that is the fantasy. The idea of the South is also an influence for me. My work draws on country noir, so the city isn't really a part of my work. Although I was influenced by the movie Sharky's Machine in 1981. For those who aren't familiar, that's a Burt Reynolds movie where he plays an Atlanta Vice Squad detective. My aunt and uncle should not have taken me to see it, but it was amazing, and the centerpiece of the film is the shimmering Peachtree Plaza Hotel, which I thought was just a jaw-dropper. Atlanta is a good match for me because I wanted to stay close to my roots and family, but still get to enjoy the perks of a big city. Favorite places are the new gallery, Take It Easy, on Edgewood from curator Jamie Steele and her partners. And down the street from there, Susan Bridges' white space never lets you down. You can see my color photographs in the permanent collection at Mocha GA, and I am represented by Jackson Fine Art Gallery in Buckhead. Fine art photographer Jody Fawcett and our series, Speaking of the Arts. More information about Fawcett's work, including his upcoming summer show, Baby Doll, is on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture, Catch an encore broadcast tonight at 9. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., conductor Natalie Stutzmann shares what's in store for the new Atlanta Symphony Orchestra season, her first as ASO music director, plus singer-songwriter and multi-instrumentalist Gabriel Cahane and the story behind his choice to spend a year off the Internet. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WAB yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.